How many of you can say you're suffering in some way or the other? Some here are probably suffering relationally because uh, of a broken heart or because you've lost a loved one recently. Others here are suffering because of some sickness or some disease. Some are suffering because of financial distress, various kinds of suffering that we encounter in life. This is the third message in our Explore God series. And of all the seven big questions that we're asking throughout this series, this is perhaps the most heartfelt, the most visceral, if you will. And we're often left mystified at God's unsearchable ways through suffering. Philosophers and religious figures, you know, throughout history have grappled with this question of suffering and pain, and they have arrived at conclusions that have shaped them and have also shaped the lives of countless people after them. For example, take the Buddha, whose religion, by the way, you should know, is sweeping America today at a rapid rate. When the Buddha was a young man, he was shaken by the reality of suffering. And he went out to quote unquote explore this problem. And the conclusion that he arrived at is that we suffer as human beings simply because we have desire. Therefore, he said, we need to kill desire in order to eliminate suffering, do away with all desire. The only problem with that is that you have to first desire to kill desire. So how do you do that? You know, yesterday I heard that there were some crazy people out there on Lake Michigan who were doing the polar plunge in this already crazy weather. I think they should have used this philosophy on those people. Um, and even if they did, I don't know if it would have worked. So Buddhism's killing desire. Hinduism says that the answer to suffering is yoga. In Islam, you're not even supposed to ask why there's suffering. You're supposed to just steal yourself and submit, no questions asked whatsoever. Then you take the so-called scientists of today. The so-called scientists who are really postmodern philosophers who are really clueless. For example, Richard Dawkins, his view of suffering is this. He says, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. So much for the scientist in him. The Christian biblical worldview is distinctly different. The Bible says, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Isaiah 1.18. God welcomes you. He welcomes us with our questions, not just to find answers, but to find him in the end. We're here to ask God today why he allows pain and suffering in our lives. And we're praying that God gives us hope and that he gives us meaning and comfort in our suffering. Now, of course, you know, in the time we have, we can't do justice to this topic. If I tried, I know I would go too long, and I know I would cause you to suffer. So <laughs> I'm not going to try. Instead, what we're doing is we're offering you a book that I wrote on suffering, and it's called Endurance Experts. Endurance Experts, a perspective on suffering, from an Eastern millennial living in the West, and the book will be available for us in our media center after the service. In searching the Bible for answers to this question, here are three realms within suffering that I want us to consider this morning, three realms within suffering, the responses, the reasons, and the rewards. 
God allows suffering, first of all, so that we may rejoice in him and repent. Now we enter into the responses. Now I know that rejoicing as the response to suffering may sound odd, or it may even sound wrong to you. So let me explain what I mean. In James chapter one, the Bible says this, James chapter one and verse two, count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials. Now notice very carefully that he addresses this to my brothers or to my sisters. He is writing to Christians to tell them how to respond to suffering. Now you say, wait a minute, I thought you invited me to explore God as a non-Christian to tell me how to respond to suffering. And yes, that's true. And in a moment, we're going to look at how you, if you're a non-Christian, how you are to respond to suffering. But first, we need to realize that we as Christians, those of us who believe, we need to be reminded of how to respond to suffering. Because if we don't know how Christ wants us to respond, no amount of verbal persuasion is going to help us speak truth to a suffering non-Christian. So notice the word in the text there in James, consider or count. Consider or count, he says count it all joy. This is an accounting term, a finance term. It has to do with how we evaluate suffering. Somebody who does not believe in a loving God who permits suffering, he or she evaluates suffering as something that is ruining life and therefore something that you need to run from and you need to escape. But for the Christian, because we know that it is God who allows us to suffer, we can evaluate it as a good investment that will yield great interests in the future. That's why, even though it is presently painful for us as we suffer, we are enabled by God to respond with joy. But you say, how can a Christian really consider it all joy? What is he saying here? in suffering. Well, one thing I can tell you, it's certainly not a fake it till you make it type of response that is commanded here. The Christian is not just to put on an act and act joyful, that's not what he's saying, as if nothing were wrong. That would be a form of denial. Rather, we can actually have joy in suffering. And sometimes, you know, the road to joy passes through the town of lament. Sometimes we need to lament before the Lord. But even though we have lament and even though we have sorrow and suffering, joy for the Christian is possible because of our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says of Jesus in suffering, who for the joy that lay before him endured the cross. Hebrews 12:2. And in Christ, you and I experience joy, not apart from suffering, but through it. Then the Bible says that it is the Holy Spirit who produces joy in us as Christians. He says that one of the fruits of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. It is a supernatural provision, Galatians 5.22 says. And as a believer, if you are not experiencing this joy this morning, you know you can ask God for it, and you should ask God for it. Because notice another thing that he says about our suffering. He says, when you encounter various trials. Do you see the word when in the text? It's not if, but when. The Christian worldview, the Christian biblical worldview acknowledges suffering as an inescapable reality. 
especially for Christians. The Bible says all who will live a godly life in Christ Jesus will experience suffering. So we don't deny it as some people do. We don't deny the reality of suffering, but we are concerned about how to respond with joy. I want you to notice something very interesting here in this passage from James, which I believe will benefit you this morning. James positions this response to suffering before the reason for suffering is given. In the very next verse, he's going to give us the reason for why suffering exists in the life of the believer, but the expected response to suffering is stated before the reason. Now this sequence is a very peculiar sequence. Now if you prize logical progression, if you're looking to logic, you may expect to have the reason come before the response so that you can have the reason and rightly respond. But God, in his infinite wisdom, often deems it fit to write out the response that he expects from us before he writes out the reasons. And that's what he does here. We're asked to respond with joy even before we know the reason for suffering. And from this response before reason sequence emerges one way of conceptualizing what faith is. You may be asking if you're a non-believer, what does it mean to have faith? Faith is responding to the circumstances of life as God expects, even before we know the reasons for those circumstances. Responding to the circumstances of life as God expects, even before we know the reasons for those circumstances. Understand and experience faith in this way, and with God's help, you will endure suffering with joy. Now, if a Christian should respond to suffering with joy, how should a non-Christian respond? Well, in Mark chapter 10, we have this account of Jesus and his disciples exiting the city of Jericho, the Gentile city of Jericho, and as they're exiting that city, they are being followed by great crowds. The Bible tells us that out there, as they are exiting the city, there sits blind Bartimaeus begging. Now, we don't know how long Bartimaeus suffered this way, but on this day, it was all going to change for him. He hears that Jesus of Nazareth is passing by, and so he begins to cry out. He's blind, so he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the crowds try to shush him, but the more they try to quieten him, he cries out all the more. Now, why did God allow Bartimaeus to suffer as a blind beggar? Because God was trying to get his attention. Having gotten Bartimaeus' attention, he makes Bartimaeus sense a need in his heart that only Christ could fulfill. Then watch this, a switch happens. Bartimaeus now tries to get the attention of the one who got his attention. He cries out and tries to get Jesus' attention. Jesus says, what is it that you will have me to do for you? He says, Lord, that I may receive my sight. Jesus says, go your way. Your faith has made you whole. Then the Bible says, immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus in the way. God got his attention as he suffered blindness and abject poverty 
and the intended result was not so much his receiving his physical sight as much as it was his receiving his spiritual sight, that is the faith to follow Jesus in the way. The right response, please hear me, for one who has not believed in God yet is to turn to him. That's what it means to repent, turning to God as he changes your mind by and by. You know, C.S. Lewis, who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, he was an atheist to begin with. But after he believed in God, he realized something very profound. And he said this. He said, pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pain. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts to us in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And if you're listening to this as someone who has never believed in Jesus, but you are suffering, I believe that God is speaking to you through his megaphone of pain so that you will turn to him in your suffering. But what does God want us to hear through that megaphone that he uses? Secondly, God allows suffering so that he may rescue us and remake us. And now we enter more particularly into the reasons he allows or permits suffering or the purposes. Now, I think we can all agree that mostly everyone likes a good story, right? I think everyone here likes a good story. There's something captivating about how people's lives begin and progress and end. But the key to a good story is how a problem is resolved. You know, most stories have a protagonist or a hero who comes in and saves the day. And authors who tell stories the best are the ones who know how to set up the problem and introduce this hero into seemingly impossible situations so that despite the odds, at the end of the day, somehow, someway, the hero triumphs. Great authors know how to do that and how to build a story. But what even the greatest authors cannot do is they cannot literally and physically enter the world that they have created with their words. They can't do that. God, however, is different. God, the Bible says, is the author of life. He says, the Bible says he created it all by the word of his mouth, knowing full well that there would be a problem down the road. So what he did is, did is that he wrote himself into the story, literally entering the world he created in the person of Jesus Christ to rescue us from our problem. In Romans chapter eight, in Romans chapter eight, the Bible says, Paul describes that problem that he came to rescue us from, and he says, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers, Romans 8.22. All of creation, we people and the ecosystems we inhabit, we're all suffering at the present. But why? Well, in the prior sentence, Paul said, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, Romans 8, 20 to 21. Creation is groaning and suffering because it was subjected to futility. And the Bible says that God caused our subjection to futility. You know, in the beginning, when God created the worlds, we were all free and we were permanent. He created us free and permanent. Those are the key words. 
But at some point in time, what happened was creation lost its freedom and permanence, and then we became the opposite, enslaved and transient. That is the property of being short-lived, like a vapor set in, and with it came decay and death. And we find that creation is constantly under this curse that is recorded in Genesis chapter 3. Now we have to understand though that God did not allow this enslavement on a whim. It was not that God was just feeling capricious one day and he said, I'm going to enslave everything that I've created. No, but because an element contrary to his nature entered creation. What was that element and what was the conduit of its entry? In Romans chapter 5, the Bible says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all have sinned. Romans 5.12 It was sin's entry into the world that, God, that caused God to subject his perfect creation to the corruption that leads to death, sin. And the conduit through which sin entered the world was one man, it says, the historical Adam, the first created man. When Adam, who was part of God's perfect and sinless creation, rebelled against his creator, as we read in Genesis chapter 3, sin entered the world. And since then, you know, the news has been packed with stories of humans who have been suffering and dying. All of us here seated this morning are genetically predisposed to sin. And we find that sin is in our very blood and suffering is in the very air we breathe. The ultimate cause then for suffering is sin. The effect of sin is suffering. Now I know this has been a little morbid thus far, but this colossal problem meant that God, who is the author, had to enter his story to rescue us from sin and death. God had to enter time and space to rescue us from this problem. You know, Hitler was well known for giving diabolical speeches. He would rant and rave like a madman. And in one of his speeches, he called Jews criminals and parasites, saying this, the heaviest bolt is not heavy enough and the securest prison is not secure enough that a few million could not in the end open it. Only one bolt cannot be opened and that is death. Only one bolt cannot be opened and that is death. You know, about the bolt of death, Hitler was unwittingly right. It cannot be opened by a man, that is. That's why Jesus had to come as a man. The Bible says of Jesus, therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he like himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. In other words, the route that Jesus took to open the bolt of death was to enter into the domain of our life, enter into the domain of human life, so that he could travel into the domain of death and there open the bolt. And he did that, he opened the bolt. Jesus' death on the cross shows us, and hear me carefully now, God allowed suffering in this world so that his son would suffer and die to save us from suffering and death. 
You ask the question, why is there suffering and pain in the world? And it, the question always stares back at us, why did God allow his perfect and sinless son to die and suffer the way he did? So that he would save us from suffering and death. And in doing so, God ensured that Jesus would be the hero of this story that he's writing. That is the savior of all who acknowledge that they need his rescuing. Jesus is the savior of suffering sinners. And he is also the suffering savior of sinners, both. The savior of suffering sinners and the suffering savior of sinners. And did you know you can pour out your heart to Jesus in your suffering? You can tell him all about your suffering. You can complain. You can ask questions to Jesus because the Bible says he can sympathize with us in our weaknesses as one who has been tempted in all things like we are yet without sin. Hebrews 4.15. It is Jesus' absolute sinlessness that qualifies him without rival as the savior of suffering sinners. I want to ask you, is he your savior yet? Have you believed on him? Today, he is willing to save you from sin. He is willing to rewrite your story and he is willing to give you hope and meaning in suffering. And then we find that those who believe in Jesus are not merely rescued. It's not just that we're rescued, but we are rescued to be remade. We heard it quoted by Serene in the baptism that everyone who is in Christ is a new creation. We are remade. This is the comfort of the Christian in suffering, that God is remaking us, shaping us, and molding us to be more like Christ. That's why, and I'm now back in James, that's why James, after saying, count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, he goes on to say in verse 3 of chapter 1, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. The Greek word there for endure is a very interesting word, and it literally means remain under, remain under. In suffering, God desires for us to remain under the pressure or pain that we are sensing as believers and not give up until we learn what he wants us to through the trial. We know that after God saved the ancient Israelites out of Egyptian slavery, for some reason or the other, they wanted to return and go back to Egypt, back to the slavery. They wanted to escape the wilderness of testing and go back to Egypt. So having gotten them out of Egypt, God now had to get Egypt out of them. Their faith in God needed to be tested to the point of trustworthiness. And that would happen only as they trusted God and as they endured. Warren Wearsby was the senior pastor of the Moody Church before Pastor Lutzer, and he said something very interesting. He said, a faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted. A faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted. I know and you know that the testing is painful. We have sleepless nights, we're unable to eat, we weep and all of that. But let's be encouraged that the rewards that follow the testing far outweigh the pain. Because notice with me thirdly that God allows pain and suffering 
so that he may duly reward us. And now we look at the rewards, so that he may duly reward us. In God's plan, in his economy, there are eventual rewards and regrets, and there are also eternal rewards and regrets. First, let's look at eventual rewards. And by eventual, I mean that which pertains to this lifetime, the rewards which we receive within this lifetime. Again, in James, he spells out the reward for enduring suffering in the Christian's life. Look at James 1.4. He says, and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. When we continue walking faithfully with God through suffering, not giving up on God, not turning the other way, what happens is, oddly, God begins to show us our sin. He begins to show us more of who we are, our pride, our self-centeredness, lust and fear and impatience and worry, and so many other sins that we are prone to emerge to the surface in the crucible of suffering. And then what he does is, as we endure, over time, he supplies what we lack in our character. He gives us the opposites, humility, and love, and courage, and purity, and patience, and trust. He works those into our character. Each time we suffer and endure, God is perfecting something in us. Why? Ultimately, to make us more like his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But then notice that he says, there is a command to allow endurance to have its perfecting result. We have a responsibility in it. He's saying, don't cut short the work of God maturing you as a Christ follower. Let it have its perfect result. Endure. And you know, there are many examples, many illustrations and pictures of endurance that can be painted. We can borrow from history. We can borrow from nature. But there is none so poignant as Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane just before he goes to the cross to die for our sins. There in the Garden of Gethsemane is the sinless, holy, innocent Son of God. He has been rejected by the people that he loves, and he is soon to feel abandoned by the Father. He's about to drink the cup of God's wrath that is being poured out on him because of the vile and filthy sins of the world, yours and mine as well. They're about to, the wrath of God is about to be poured out on him. And as he's praying there in Gethsemane, he asks the Father not once nor twice, but three times, as he sweats drops of blood, he says, Father, if it is your will, please let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And you know, in that moment of suffering, which is unparalleled by anything in ordinary human experience, in that moment, Jesus wanted out. He wondered if there was another way that this could be done, but he chose rather to obey and endure and be obedient to the will of his Father. You and I today are the beneficiaries of his enduring death on the cross and rising again and being seated today at the right hand of the majesty on high, the Bible says. And you know, it's from there 
It's being seated at the right hand of God that Jesus blesses us. He completes in us that which is lacking. He seeks to bless us as he looks upon us. But when we run, when we run from the trials that God sends us, we end up actually losing the blessings that God would, act, would otherwise give us through the trials. We lose the benefits and the blessings. We remain spiritually stunted when we follow the cues of our culture or sometimes even of well-intentioned but wrong Christians who tell us to take matters into our own hands and do as we please. It's better, far better to follow the example of Jesus in suffering, endure and be amply rewarded. Not only are there eventual rewards on earth, but there are also eternal rewards in heaven. But before I mention the eternal rewards, I need to mention what eternal regrets await people, eternal regrets. Suppose I stood here and said to you, in order to give you hope, suppose I said one day all suffering is going to end. If I said that, I would be lying. All suffering is going to end true one day for people who are in heaven, but not all suffering in the world is going to end, no. Those who are outside of Christ and apart from God will plunge themselves into an eternity of unending suffering, a place that the Bible calls hell. Hell will be a place of eternal regret filled with people who once and for all reject Jesus Christ, the one who came to rescue us from sin and suffering. Those who end up in hell finally, the Bible teaches, for example, in Revelation chapter 16, are those who go through great suffering on earth, but in that suffering, they don't heed God's warning that comes through his megaphone, but they rather harden their hearts against him and have no regrets about rejecting Jesus. So great will be the horror of hell that the Bible says in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 11, it says of the inhabitants of hell and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night. There's no rest in hell. It's a place of unending misery and suffering. And so if you're suffering this morning, if you're listening to me via the internet, or if you are here this morning, if you're suffering this morning without Jesus Christ, may I warn you in love and soberly, you're in danger of eternal suffering. Receive today, receive today the love and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ that is being offered to you while there's hope. Christ alone and no one else can grant you eternal life and entry into heaven. You can't do it on your own. No one else can do it for you. Christ alone can do it. For the believer though, for the believer, and I want to end on a high note here because there's always hope. For the believer, there will be eternal rewards in heaven, many rewards. The Bible says that in your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. The first and greatest reward is and always will be God himself. Nothing greater than having God himself. We're going to see him face to face and we're going to be with him forever. When we cross the finish line of the marathon of suffering in life, we are going to be welcomed by Jesus himself. 
Jesus promised before he left, he said, in my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you to myself, that where I am you may be also. It says in John chapter 12, John chapter 14, excuse me, verses two and three. Heaven will be a place where all suffering will have ended, period. That's why the Bible says in heaven, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Are you crying today because of your suffering? The Bible says God will wipe away our tears. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. Revelation 21.4. In heaven, we're going to look upon all of the suffering that we suffered on earth. And we're going to say in the past tense, we're going to look upon it and say that momentary light affliction has produced for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. The weight of God's glory in heaven that you and I are going to experience and witness and share in, the weight of God's glory is going to erase and eclipse all suffering once and for all. This past Christmas Eve, as we were even celebrating here at the Moody Church a candlelight service or wherever you were on Christmas Eve, in Collierville, Tennessee, Collierville, Tennessee, a fire engulfed a house in which a couple and their 13-year-old son hosted three teenage missionary kids from India, two sisters and a brother. The host dad and the son escaped the fire as they, it blazed at night, but his wife and the three Indian missionary kids did not make it out. The, they were from, these three missionary kids were from the city of Hyderabad in India where I'm from, and their parents work among a certain tribal group that's outside the city. They're missionaries to that tribal group. But before they died, the three children at a Christmas Eve gathering at that house, they sang that well-known song, the drummer boy song, which you know the words to. Come, they told me, pa-rampa-pum-pum, a newborn king to see, pa-rampa-pum-pum. And they went, they sang that song, they went to bed, they were killed in the fire, and they awoke to see that king in heaven. Now, a few days after that, just a few days after that, their parents arrived from India, heartbroken beyond words. And in a remembrance service that was held at Collierville Bible Church, their mother, who can't even really speak English, but in her native tongue, she sang a song. And the words translate as follows. I have no perfume. I don't have silver or gold, but I give you my life. I give you my heart. I kiss your feet. I wash your feet with my tears. Have no perfume, don't have silver or gold, but I give you my life, I give you my heart, I kiss your feet, I wash your feet with my tears. What accounts for a mother who just lost all three of her children in a fire in the midst of that heartbreak and pain? What accounts for her to be able to sing such high praise to God? Nothing else. 
nothing else but the hope of heaven, the promised eternal reward that Jesus gives to all who suffer in this life but believe. The reward, the promise of the reward that she will see her children once again in heaven. What is, I wonder, your song in suffering? Is it a song of lament, and that's okay if it is, or is it a song of joy? And whichever it is, does your song in suffering have notes of hope in it? Because Jesus defeated sin through his death, and he rose again from the dead, and he lives. Does your song have hope in it? And again, you may be suffering today relationally. Maybe you've lost a loved one or you're heartbroken. You may be suffering physically. You may be suffering spiritually or financially in whatever way. Specific situations demand specific answers to the problem and to the question of your own suffering. The good news is this, that Jesus answers this question, not just with abstract answers, but by giving you himself in a love relationship. It is a love relationship that is founded on the truth and it is from that love relationship founded on the truth that hope springs eternal and never dies. As we end in prayer this morning, in these moments that God is speaking to you, some of you will pray as we end in prayer. You'll pray to God for the very first time, giving your life to Christ. Some others of you who do believe in Christ we need strength and we need joy for the journey. As you bow your heads in a moment of prayer and in a moment of silence, don't let this moment pass without responding to God. Our prayer partners are going to begin to make their way up to the front at this time. And as they do that, once you see them up there, come and talk with them, pray with them, whether you're giving your life to Jesus for the very first time, you want to take that step of faith, or whether you as a Christian need someone to pray with, come and talk to our prayer partners. Just a moment of silence and I'll end in prayer. And our Father, we thank you that Jesus meets us in our suffering and gives us himself. I'm asking you to seal the truth that has been preached this morning to the hearts of people. I ask that you may raise some from death to life today. And I pray that you will cause us who believe in you to endure and to believe you. We thank you in advance for what you are going to do as a result of this. In Jesus' name. Amen.